So good morning, everybody. I hope you've all had a good week. Um, I have. I became a nanny, as you all know, on Saturday. So I've just been um, giving thanks to God for that. And I just spent more time in the prayer room, actually. Um, And I just wanted to encourage you all that even though prayer week has finished, that you don't just not go to the prayer room. You can still take regular slots. You can do that via Rob, just, you know, check if anyone's going to be there. And, of course, you can pray anytime and anywhere, but actually go into the prayer room. That's our place as a community where we go, we seek God. You see what people have written on the walls. You can see answers to prayer. You can, you know, give thanks um, for things that are up there. So I just really encourage you to continue going to the prayer room once or however you want to a week, even though prayer week's now over. Um, so this morning we have Lucy Hill with us. Can we give her a round of applause? And also, oh no, let's sing happy birthday to her. One, two, three. Happy Lucy, thank you so much for being here on your birthday. It's brilliant that you're here. So Lucy is going to be picking up the story from Dan Slatter, who, as we remember last um, month, was incredible. He had a big chunk, big chunk to uh, to uh, um, get through in his time. Um, he started talking about the covenants and the promises of God through the Old Testament, and then um, he spoke about Saul and David and Solomon, and then about the northern and southern divide, and then he ended up going, when they went into um, exile, and this is where Lucy is going to pick up the story. So can I pray for you, Lucy? Yeah, Father God, we just thank you um, for this morning. We thank you for this time that we can come and hear more of your story, God. We thank you for Lucy, who's um, just sacrificed to, to bring to us today what you have laid on our heart, God. I just pray um, that your word is just declared this morning and that we can learn from you and from Lucy, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Trip you up there, Caroline. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So people were asking me what I was doing for my birthday. I was like, I'm unpacking 70 years of Babylonian invasion for my birthday. It's very exciting. Um, no, I killed Sally for uh, telling everybody it was my birthday. Although my my daughter had a friend over yesterday, and my she was we were saying it was my birthday. So I asked her how old she thought I was. So she said she thought I was 35. So she's my best friend forever now. It made me very happy. Um, it's really lovely to be here with you. <clears throat> um, my husband and I were here in Stanford about, I can't remember how many years ago, but four at least. How old's Iris? So she's three and a half, so it must be four and a half years ago. Yeah, about four and a half years ago, right at the beginning of our kind of journey with 24-7 prayer. <clears throat> and um, Rob and Sally graciously let us come and hang out and see what you guys were up to here in Stanford, and I have to say, you you guys were really a massive part of inspiring us in our journey and exciting us about what was possible, about rethinking church, reimagining church, um, and uh, kind of looking at how to do that a little bit differently. So, uh, and I have continued to be a real source of inspiration along the way and along the journey, um, and it's always lovely to get to spend time with some of you guys at some of the gatherings. Hope you're all coming to Belfast. That's so I am. Um, I'm originally from Belfast, grew up in Belfast, now I live in Dublin, 
with Ross. We have three girls, Maddie, Ruby and Iris. And we lead a 24-7 prayer community uh, in Dublin, trying to, in a, in a context in Dublin, which where has changed dramatically in the last 20 years, um, seeing the complete collapse of major institutions in our, uh, in our country. Uh, so a complete loss of faith in those things um, and a particular kind of disillusionment and disenchantment with the church um, and a real rise of um, money and materialism and consumerism and those kind of values. So uh, we are kind of there in our own local community trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus as individuals and as a community of people as well. So thank you so much for having me. Um, you, I'm going to do a little, uh, Caroline just did a little brief recap there, but I don't know, I'm sure you were all here at the last one, but I'm going to do a quick recap. But I was just joking. I was saying I've forgotten. We did the God story probably about two years ago in our community, and I've forgotten just how vast a task it is. Um, But when I looked at the outline for this particular month, I was like, oh, it's okay. I only have to do 70 years. Um, In comparison to Dan last month. But, uh, But then I realized that exile is like the bleakest part of the story. Uh, I, got, I, got, I got the dark days. And, um, and so it's like, the, it's the greatest catastrophe that has faced um, Israel to date. Um, and, but actually, it's a really key moment in the story. I know all the moments are key and they're all important, but this is actually a really defining moment in the story. Um, and it actually sets the scene for the next 500 years, really up until Jesus enters the story. Um, and so um, there's a lot of stuff to cover. There's a lot of really significant metaphors for us to get our heads around. Exile and Babylon, which we'll uh, look at. Um, and also, I got the major prophets. So I was like, why could I not have got, you know, the, the prophets that are only like, you know, five or six chapters? No. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Big, they're, not, they're not called the major prophets for nothing. They are big, big books. Um, but there's something actually in that, that in, in a short period of time, to have such big books covering, uh, it tells us something, that God had something to say to Israel in this period of their history. Um, and so in general, we're covering a little bit of the end of Second Kings, part of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Lamentations. So it will be a whistle-stop tour across the prophets, um, but definitely some things for us to hold on to. Okay, so the story so far, um, if you've been here from the very beginning, we've got the seed of promise has passed through the patriarchs into Egypt, and then out of Egypt through Moses into the wilderness, where um, where God kind of, they become the children of, of Israel become the people of, uh, of God and the commandments and God reveals himself to Moses. And then we see them entering the promised land with Joshua and we entered the era of the judges. And then eventually God agrees to give them a king um, after much um, pestering. And so under, um, we've Saul, but then under David, really David sets up the national structure uh, for, for Israel. So there's a ruler, there's a capital, Jerusalem, and they're no longer a people without a home, but they're established to live out their calling. And David has this vision for the temple, which his son Solomon carries on to build. And the story goes then that Israel has basically systematically broken this covenant, this covenant relationship that God has formed with them. They formed unholy alliances with other nations, and they've adopted other cultures. Welcome. <laughs> It was all part of the failure here to do the drama. <laughs> You're going to act out the last, uh, you know, several hundred years. 
You've returned from exile. Welcome back. <laughs> so, so yes, yeah, so we've got this. Um, they've adopted other cultures, worshipping other gods. And so the kingdom splits. And so we've got the northern kingdom, 10 tribes. Southern Israel, southern kingdom is Judah with two tribes. And so the northern kingdom really, they just have a terrible time. They can't find one good king amongst themselves. And the southern kingdom doesn't really do much better. They have a kind of, they score about 8 out of 20 with only kind of two really exceptional examples um, of kings. So then we see the story really continuing to go horribly wrong. And, um, and the, after the split, um, we've got the kingdom, the northern kingdom being um, conquered by Assyria. And they're taken into exile. And basically that kingdom never survives. That's it. That's the end of the line for them. Um, and they're, they're completely swallowed up. Um, but Assyria is, power, is on the downturn and the Babylonian power is on the rise. Um, and so in the southern kingdom, um, we have... This, we've a couple of the prophets who've already been speaking have been Joel um, and Isaiah has been speaking and uh, and Micah and their job's been to confront and to challenge and to try and remind Israel of their calling um, and to hold them accountable but also to prophesy to them of what is to come if they don't take stock and make some changes and one by one these prophets are just all rejected nobody's listening and Judah is on its course for its own catastrophe um, so this is where we enter the story. Um, and so this is known as the age of exile. So it's the age where the kingdom of Judah is conquered and they're living in a foreign land. And they're living as strangers in their own land, those that do remain in Jerusalem. Um, it becomes a little colony of Babylon. And a, another way of putting it for us this morning as we think about what's happening is it's the beginning of the end. In other words, this ends part of the story that's been written so far and it sees a reimagining of what God is actually going to do with the people of Israel. So the challenge with all of this is how not to avoid it becoming a history lesson and you're really not in luck this morning because I, uh, I, I studied history. <laughs> so actually I'm in my element uh, so we're just going to have a history lesson this morning uh, but it is good to just have a quick sort of run through what actually happened and um, what occurred how did this take place so we're going to run through it really quickly if you want uh, we're not I'm not going to read it in detail but the end of second kings chapters 24 and 25 do you want to go on to the next slide oh yes see I'm this is the other thing I have to apologize for my powerpoint skills are terrible and then I was like and it's a really long period of time to not have powerpoint so I'm going to do PowerPoint probably really badly. So you can see that's quite small. But you see those two lines running down? You probably can't see it over there. But that's the period that we're covering. So you can see just at the end there, you've got Josiah, King Josiah, um, coming to the end of Judah's kings. Got our own King Josiah in the front, uh, looking very royal. And, um, and then we've got the last couple of kings, and then we enter into the Babylonian era. And so then up there, we've got the prophets, so you see the ones that we're really focusing on, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel through that 70-year period of exile. And you'll see and we'll look on the fact that basically this is now the story for Israel. Exile is their story. So even though their, their Babylonian occupation only lasts for 70 years, give or take a couple of years, they basically are always now going to be under somebody else's rule. So Babylon gets conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and then we go on to Greece and and so on and so on. It's basically their story now. So next slide, Christy. Yep. So if you want to have a little look at it in more detail, 
2 Kings 24 to 25 will give you the story of the three Babylonian invasions. So we basically have three successive invasions. Um, And so by 586 BC, um, Judah has been completely conquered. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And the people are sent off in exile. It's a forced migration. Um, So what are the moments that lead up to this? So we've got Josiah, who's the king of Judah. So maybe go to the first slide, because I think that'll give us the first. Yep. So first phase, invasion number one, 605 BC. So in the lead up to this, we've got Josiah. And then he's in a battle against Egypt. And Josiah gets killed. And so his son becomes the king. But three months later, Egypt come. They take him off. And he's gone. And so his next son, I'm not even going to try and pronounce their names. Jehoiakim, I think is his name. So he becomes the king. And so three years later in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who we all are familiar with from the book of Daniel. So he invades. And in this first phase, it's mostly the upper classes who get captured and taken. The upper elite, the professionals of um, society in Judah, basically the ones who will serve the empire well. And so Daniel is one of the first people to be taken uh, from Judah into exile, and himself and his friends, um, who we'll read about in a little bit. Basically, smart young men who will serve the empire, and only the poorest were left behind. And so King Jehoiakim basically has to give his allegiance to Babylon and to Nebuchadnezzar. So he recognizes where he's at, uh, pays tribute for three years, it says, and then he just decided to stop paying it. So he rebels. And six years later, next phase comes along, phase two. So they're being very cooperative, and then they just decide to stop paying. So three years later, he shows up, and then Nebuchadnezzar evades once again. And he takes some more captives with him back to Babylon. And this time includes uh, the prophet Ezekiel, who um, is, is a really important part of the story because Ezekiel basically speaks to the people right in the midst of their exile. And he's also experiencing exile. Um, and then we get a new king again. So he gets rid of the rebellious one. And his son, they were obviously not very um, <clears throat> inspired with names. So we have King Jehoiakim and then his son is Jehoiakim, I think. Just, they just spelled it differently. They're like, if we spell it differently, it will look different. So he becomes the king, but he lasts for three months. So that's all he gets. He gets three months. And then um, Nebuchadnezzar decides it's not working with him. He takes him and his family off to Babylon, and he installs his brother um, Zedekiah as king, hoping that he'll be a little bit more cooperative um, and a little bit less rebellious. And he is the last king of Judah. Um, So we go on to the last phase of exile. So, surprise, surprise, Zedekiah decides to rebel as well. Um, He decides he's had enough of um, Babylon's rule. And so Nebuchadnezzar marches on Jerusalem, and they basically have a siege on the city that lasts nearly two years. So, I I mean, it's kind of hard for us to imagine, Um, but they basically lay siege all around the city walls, and... For, for two years, the people are, are there, and it starts to get pretty grim. It's, it's a pretty brutal experience for anybody who's there at the time. Um, it tells us that women start eating their children. Um, it's, that's how bad it gets. And Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah at this time, he's actually in prison um, throughout this as well. So he is the, he's one of the people who've stayed in Jerusalem. And so basically, at the end of those two years, they break down the city walls, 586 BC ends the siege, 
Jerusalem is completely destroyed. They destroy the temple. That basically, the city is just left in wreck and ruin. And the rest of the exiles are marched off to Babylon. And it tells us in Second Kings that only the poorest of the poor are left behind in, in Jerusalem. Um, and basically, the idea is that they would just tend to the land, that we just kind of keep it going. And they, they install a governor to just keep an eye on things. Um, and Jeremiah is one of the few who remain in the city in prison. They reckon that at some point, Jeremiah is taken to Egypt, and that's where he actually dies. Um, so that's, that is what happened. That was how they ended up there. And they reckon, it, I just, when I was reading up on this, it said that unlike the Assyrians, who were pretty brutal um, occupiers, the Babylonians, it wasn't quite as brutal, but they, but they didn't replace anybody into Jerusalem. So it basically became like a ghost town. And the estimates are that it could have been reduced from as many as 250,000 to about 20,000 people. Um, but a remnant of the people do survive. And as I said... As we'll learn this morning, empires rise and empires fall. And Babylon, after its uh, reign of 70 years, falls. And, uh, and the Medes and the Persians conquer it. And Cyrus the Great basically issues a decree 70 years later, declaring that the inhabitants of Judah are free to return so that they are given permission to go home. But only a remnant actually go. So basically, the people of Israel have ended up back in Babylon, which is where Abraham started. So they are back almost at the beginning of their story again. It's almost as if the story is pointless. And this is a really low point for the children of Israel. They've lost everything. So they've lost their king. They've lost their land. I think I might have a slide on this. (laughs) Yep. So we've got the loss of their land. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Their place in which they inhabit. They've been forced out of it. They are displaced. They've lost their king. There are no more kings until Jesus. And they've lost the temple, the place where God's presence was, the place where God dwelt amongst them has been destroyed. And so they've lost their hope. They felt utterly abandoned by God in this moment. And there's a sense of the loss of the promise and the loss of the covenant. And what does that mean for their faith now in this new part of the story. Um, you know, it, I read that it was almost as if they were uncreated, that all that led them to this place, they believed they would be a great nation. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, to point people to God, and it had gone horribly wrong and come crashing down around them. Jeremiah twenty-one fourteen says this, I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, I will kindle a fire in her forest and it shall devour all that is around her. There's that image of just it being burnt up, completely burnt up. And Isaiah refers to Israel as a scorched stump, like a tree that has been cut down and scorched. But as always in the story, there are always moments and words of hope. And there's this glimmer of hope that comes from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so even though their line of kings has ended, Isaiah tells us that it is here that it will be restarted again, that there is a restoration plan. And Jeremiah echoes this theme as well. So the seed of the story is still alive. 
it has not been lost. And it is a significant moment in the story um, because life will never be the same again. So, so the people of Judah, the Israelites, they're never gonna, it's never going to go back to what it's been. It's not going to look how it's looked before. They will spend their days as a people in exile. And, and actually, you know, not much changed in some ways because we know from reading the Gospels that when Jesus came, the Jews were still hoping and holding out that they would be restored as a great nation and restored to their power. And, and God would indeed give them another king and he would give them another place and he would give them a new temple, but it was going to look different. And that's why the prophets in this story are so important because they cast a vision for the restoration of Israel and for the story. And it was a reimagining of the covenant that God had promised. And that word reimagining, we're going to come back to it in a little while, but it's a really important part of the story. And so these prophets become really crucial in the story. They reimagine how the promise can continue. They cast a vision for hope and a future that God is not finished with the story, even though it looks this bleak, even though it looks this bad. And it's also a story about how they learned to encounter God in exile. How could they encounter God in the midst of their, of their displacement? So I'm going to introduce the prophets to you really quickly. So we've got the major prophets, Isaiah, who I'm sure you're familiar with. So Isaiah actually was speaking, he started about 150 to 100 years before the exile actually happened. But, but he prophesies about the exile, and then he speaks to them about their restoration. And uh, Isaiah is kind of split into two, just this is a quick overview. So Isaiah chapter 1 to 39 is very much set during the reign of Hezekiah. And, um, and that's the period of time that Isaiah is speaking. The rest of Isaiah, so from chapter 40 onwards, there's a little bit of dispute about who wrote it. So some people think that after he finished writing his first 39 chapters, which I'm sure it was formulated just like that, he rolled up his scrolls and he sort of stored them up. And the, some people think that years later, around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, that the scrolls were uncovered and the disciples of Isaiah began to prophesy in the same way that Isaiah had. Other people dispute that and think that, no, actually Isaiah had writ- has written the whole book and that everything that he speaks um, is, is with, with a view to the future. So not in the, so the second half of the book has that feeling of being spoken to a people in exile, to people who have experienced exile. And yet some people think, no, Isaiah actually just looked into the future. God spoke to him and gave him a vision for what he was going to do with his people in exile. So there's a little bit of uh, indecision in there. And then we've Jeremiah. So Jeremiah's been hard at work for about 40 years before exile happens. And he is pleading with um, the people of Judah to reconsider their ways because he knows that this catastrophe is on its way. Um, And then he too rolls up his scrolls and he's like, take these because you're going to need them where you're going. And we read in Daniel that actually it's those scrolls that Daniel opens towards the end of exile and uncovers. And he reads the words of Jeremiah that prophesy that exile will last for 70 years. And towards the very end, Daniel's like, it's nearly over. And then God comes and says, well, actually, it's not just 70. It's going to be seven times the 70 years. And and exile is going to continue. So these, so these words kept coming and they kept speaking in the midst of the experience of exile. And then we have Ezekiel and he comes of age in exile. So we 
he, he went in the second invasion. He goes off to Babylon. And we read at the very beginning of his, Ezekiel, if you read Ezekiel's story of his calling and how God calls him, um, is this, he's, he's age 30, which is basically the age that you would enter the priesthood. And there's this, the story goes that he's sitting on the banks of the river and he's, he is disappointed that because of exile, this could not be his story. And in that moment, God comes to him and calls him as a prophet to the people in the midst of what they are experiencing. And then Daniel, and Daniel's kind of an interesting one because it's kind of a book of two halves. The first half talks to us about life as, as exiles. How do we live as people of faith? as people who follow God in the midst of exile. And then the second half is a whole lot of really uh, dramatic and interesting visions. Um, and so Daniel, while actually isn't technically a prophet, Jesus calls him a prophet, um, but his visions are pretty apocalyptic. And I'm not even going to try and unpack them this morning, um, but they give us a general sense of this picture of kingdoms and um, nations rising and falling and God prevailing in the midst of it all. And then there's the book of Lamentations. And so Lamentations is categorized with this because it was written in response to exile, but it's really a book of poetry. And we'll look at it towards the end this morning um, about, uh, about that part of the journey in exile of, of lamenting and giving expression to what you're experiencing. So there we have them, the, the major prophets. I always think they get a better deal because major sounds like they're just that little bit better than the minor prophets. <laughs> Apparently it's just to do with the size of their books, but... I'm not, totally, I'm not totally convinced. Uh, so there we have them. Um, I think it's really helpful to remember, because we read these prophets, and actually there's some verses, I don't know if, you, if we recognize it, there's some verses in Isaiah in particular and Jeremiah that we use all the time in the church. So you know that verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And then we think of the verse in Isaiah 40 where it's, you know, talks about us growing weary and, you know, us rising on eagles' wings. And it's really helpful to remember that these were the words that were spoken to a people who were in exile, a people who believed that God had forgotten them, that God had abandoned them, that God had, had basically just was washed his hands of them, was done with them. And these are the very words that the prophets are speaking to them in the midst of this. And so sometimes we take those verses and we see them out of context, but actually it's a really helpful process to remember this is what was actually happening when they speak these things. Of course, the first to prophesy yet, next slide. So the exile was foretold time and time again. God kept trying to warn them, kept trying to say, here's your chance. There's, you know, turn it around, change your ways, make a difference. And actually, we go right back to Moses. Moses was the first to prophesy the exile. And it's in Deuteronomy 30, which is quite long, but we'll read a little bit of it because it's actually a really key text in this whole part of the story. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. I don't think I have it up there. Um, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart... Wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I commanded you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortune, fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. 
The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Let me see. And then it goes on to say, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands his decrees and his laws, and then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. So Moses is already speaking about um, exile and, uh, and then Isaiah goes on to, um, to, to speak about it. Just trying to find my place here. This is what happens. I didn't bring my iPad because I brought my computer, so I'm juggling lots of sheets of paper. So then, yes, Isaiah goes on to repeat it. And then, so does Jeremiah. And then Ezekiel himself, he goes in the first invasion, and then he's like, guys, it's going to get worse. It's not over. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And even up to the very last moment, God's giving them a chance. Uh, He's giving them as much warning as he can. But I don't know if you noticed there in that text, the key to the covenant here is a relationship with God. And it's the key is their hearts. And Moses talks about it. And as we see, we'll read in a little while. This is a theme that both Isaiah and Jeremiah pick up on. A central part of the rewriting of the story is the restoration of their hearts. And, uh, And so this is already set in place through Moses. Um, so basically, we've got these massive books. Loads of stuff happens in them. So yeah, these are the different places. Isaiah prophesies it. Jeremiah prophesies it. And then Ezekiel prophesies the fall of Jerusalem. I'm going to take my jacket off. I'm getting very warm in here. Can you hold that? Um, Thank you. So yes, so we've got all these different places and all these different chances. Um, and I just want to get a sense, we can't cover what's in these books, they are huge, but I just want to give us a sense of what's happening with the prophets. What are they, um, what are they speaking to the, to, um, to the Israelites? So next slide, we get a sense, and this is a general trajectory of the prophets. This is generally what's going on in these books. So the first thing that we mostly read about at the beginning is their calling. Isaiah has this incredible encounter with God and his glory. Um, Ezekiel has this encounter, this incredible vision of God's glory. And so they encounter God and they hear his call to be his voice um, in the midst of all that's happening. And then basically what happens is there's a lot of doom and gloom. So there's a lot of judgment on Israel where they are basically confronting Israel's rebellion and their idolatry. They are addressing their stubbornness and their disobedience and their breaking of the covenant. And the result of which has been some terrible practices and largely social injustice, which is something that they call out. They've essentially broken all of the Ten Commandments and these unholy alliances that they formed with other nations are going to be the, the thing that will actually ultimately destroy them. And so repeatedly, there's warning after warning, calling out, calling out. And then they move on from their judgment on Israel to judgment on the nations. And so they confront the nations in the ways in which they've acted as though they're God. And there's this 
this sort of this image starts to take place in the prophets of the God of Israel who confronts the gods of the nations. And the difference in this is that the judgment for Israel will lead to restoration. But this is not the case with other nations. In other words, the overriding story in the prophets is that empires will ultimately fall and God's justice and God's righteousness and his peace will ultimately reign and ultimately prevail. And so actually when you get into the text, many of them rely on these kind of very grandiose images, these archetypes that represent any kind of rebellious, dominant empires and kingdoms that do not look like the kingdom of God. And then we move on to uh, how they basically prophesy, which we've heard about, the defeat of Israel, which ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the people being led into exile. And then the defeat of the nations, um, that basically they're going to experience the same fate as, as Israel, the collapse of their, of their power. Um, and the, the underlying theme of the story is that God will keep writing the story that he's been, written, been writing since the beginning, that his justice will come to violent and oppressive kingdoms and powers. And this is the focus of Daniel's visions, and that the heart of it is a picture of a God who prevails and gives us a picture of a, of a, a, a Messiah who will come ultimately as a salvation. And thankfully, the doom and gloom does eventually end in the prophets. And we, we get on to the story of restoration and hope. And when you start to read again Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and you read of, the, of what they're prophesying, of what is to come, there are these incredible pictures and images and visions of what God is going to do. And bigger than that, it's the restoration of Israel, it's a restoration of the nations, and it's a restoration of the, of the whole of creation. Um, they tell us about Jesus, and these are these signposts to what is to come, to Jesus coming, and how he will restore all things. And there's a really interesting theme that runs through these prophets, because they basically call us to reflect on the old and the new. And a lot of them use the image of the old Jerusalem to, to call us to look ahead to a new Jerusalem that is coming and only this time, the covenant that God is creating is not just for Israel, but is for everyone. And we see in this the increasing um, sense of God's faithfulness to covenant relationship. Um, we also see Israel's increasing inability to fulfill their part of the bargain, um, and how, but how God in his faithfulness steps in and will continue to step in to fulfill the promise. Because despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God can't break his promise. And this is the abiding hope of Israel, that God is the one who has redeemed in the past and the God who will redeem us again. That's the abiding hope. And so despite all the gloom, doom and gloom, all the tragedy, at the end of each book, there's always a glimmer of hope, a hope that God will remain faithful and a hope that he'll do what he's promised he's going to do. So just... Um, quickly, and I've mentioned a couple of things, but I just want to, this will take us to the next part of the story, which is really thinking about what uh, God is shaping, what he's forming in this period. So why did exile happen? So um, if you go on to the next slide. Okay. So the prophets give us a real sense of what's happened. And of course, when we read these stories, we live in the tension, don't we, that 
Israel lived in a time in history when empires rose and they sought power. And so if we look at it just from a historical or sort of what's happening in international events, we look at it from that perspective, it's obvious that the rise of the Babylonian power in the ancient Near East, Judah's kings were rebelling, and so the nation was destroyed and they were carried into captivity. But the prophets tell a different story They tell the story that it's the result of Israel's sin that has caused Yahweh to punish her. And of course, as always in our life of faith, we live in the tension and the reality that both of those stories are true. Um, But the the key pieces in, in what the prophets are calling out are these unholy alliances. So these relationships that they formed um, with um, in the past with Egypt um, and now, so Over a hundred years ago, King Hezekiah forms an alliance with Babylon. And Isaiah says to him, this is not a good idea. This is not going to end well for you. And they've tried to warn them that actually these alliances will be their downfall. And of course, foremost and a result of these relationships and these alliances is Israel's idolatry. So the writers of the kings and the prophets were no doubt that the northern kingdom fell because of their worship of other gods. And even though back uh, over a hundred years before this happened, Hezekiah and Josiah, they tried to get rid of these other gods. They did their best, but the next king, king came in and the same practices returned. In actual fact, I read this, it said that the death of Josiah, so Josiah, they went to war with Egypt and Josiah dies and it, and it says that the, he dies at the hands of Pharaoh and it was interpreted by many as a divine punishment for his actions against these foreign gods. And even during the third siege of Jerusalem, the people of Israel were worshipping other gods in the hope that they would save them from their enemies. They were not able to let go of these other gods. And their pride and their rebellion led to this loss of their land and their temple and their king. And they lost their sense of identity. They lost a sense of who they were as the children of Israel, as the children of Yahweh. And the result of these things has been a great kind of wave of social injustice happening amongst them. The neglect of the poor and the most vulnerable which is something that the prophets tell us that God cannot tolerate. And so basically we can pinpoint all of these things as, as a res- that have broken down this relationship with God, this covenantal relationship. They refuse to listen to their warnings. They are stubborn and they persist in believing. And they, they live in this, um, this core belief that for as long as the temple is amongst them, for as long as God is with them and they worship God in the temple, it actually really doesn't matter what else happens outside of it. It's like, does that sound familiar? Uh, so for as long as they kept worshiping God in the place that he was, didn't matter what else was happening outside of it. And this was their belief. In fact, they believed so strongly that for as long as the temple was amongst them and God's presence was there, that they would be unharmed, that no harm would come to them. And as we know, that belief became completely crashing down around them. So what if their exile was an opportunity for a do-over? So when we read Isaiah and we read Jeremiah and we read Ezekiel, they all, they basically from their position and their vantage point, they believe that exile was a good thing. And Jeremiah encourages them to, to enter into it. He encourages them to submit to Babylon 
they see this as an opportunity, a wake-up call that Israel needs. And I have there at the end, it says, exile appears then as a chance for conversion. It's a restart moment in the story. Exile would reframe how they see God and how they relate to him, and ultimately it would make way for Jesus to enter the story. And there's a really, um, there's an amazing theologian called Walter Brueggemann, and he's an Old Testament theologian, and he writes extensively on this whole theme of exile. Um, And he's written about Jeremiah and Isaiah. And if you want to bring it up, he has this brilliant um, picture, I think, that sums up I think sums up our entire life of faith actually really well, but it's also really helpful as it sums up what's happening in this moment in the story. So Walter Brueggemann talks about how our life of faith usually starts with this this thing called orientation. And it's this picture that, and it might be when we first encounter God, when we first encounter God's call on us, we first enter into relationship, or just at any point when life is good, when things are going well, when things are going as they should be, and we are safely and securely oriented around God and who he is and who we are in light of that. And then often in our story, and as we know from today in the story of Israel, a disorientation happens. And a disorientation can be anything that happens in our life that causes us to question God, that causes us to ask the question, where are you, God? What are you doing? What on earth are you up to in the world? And I I imagine many of us in this room could relate to having had a disorienting moment in our faith journey. And this was Israel's disorientation. This was the moment they were like, we don't get it. We don't know what's happening anymore. But what happens in the midst of disorientation, if if because of God's faithfulness to us, and if we continue in the journey, is a reorientation. And the reality is that when we go from when we go through something that disorients us, something that shakes our faith, something that causes us to ask questions, we find ourselves in new territory. We find ourselves standing on new ground and we have to reorient ourselves around God in the midst of this new reality. Because any kind of loss, any kind of disappointment, any kind of grief in our life It reshapes how we see things, it reframes how we see the world, and it reframes how we see God. And this is what's happening to Israel in this moment. This is their moment of reorientation. This is their moment of reframing how they see God and how they see their faith and how they see themselves in relation to God. This was an important moment. The old Jerusalem was taken from them, but it was to make way for a new Jerusalem. And it was a radically different picture of God and of his coming kingdom. So this reorientation was centered on a picture of their future transformation and restoration. And the reason I, um, earlier on the slides back, went through the loss with the things they lost. They lost their king, they lost their land, they lost the temple, and they lost their hope. is because their reorientation was centered on these things as well. But it was a different way of seeing them and a different way of understanding them. So a couple of things just quickly that entered in to their thinking and their framing through the prophets um, that happened. I just want to highlight. So the first thing is that it's through the major prophets that this idea of one God comes in. It's the first time this is an idea. So up until now, we've always had the God of, we've had Yahweh, the God of Israel, and we've had the God of the nations. 
But something shifts in this point in the story. And it is now too small a thing for God to only rescue the Jews. But he is now seen, particularly by Isaiah, as a future hope for the nations and for all of creation. And if you read um, towards the end of Ezekiel, and some of you might be familiar with Ezekiel's vision of the temple, but Ezekiel has this incredible vision of this this re-established temple, but this river that starts to flow out from the temple. And the river flows, and it tells us it flows to the Dead Sea, so the place where there is no life, where nothing can live. And the river from the temple flows forth and brings life to all of creation. And suddenly there's this vision and this picture of a God, not just the God of the Jews, not just the God of Israel, but the God of all of creation. And Ezekiel ends with um, this picture, and he, he talks about the place, and he names it, uh, he names it, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. So it's no longer a, a physical, geographical place in Jerusalem, but this picture of God flowing out to the nations, of God flowing out towards all of creation. And the second thing that enters the story um, more, probably more vividly and more strongly than ever before is this hope of a messianic king and a king that would come from the line of David. But this time the king would look different. And in the face of all that they have, have, have gone through, of all they've witnessed, of all the kings that have come before, Isaiah lifts up this vision of a new king who would be a shepherd and who would be a servant and who would ultimately give himself in sacrifice for all. And this was a dramatically different view of the kings that they had known to date. And Isaiah prophesies about the nature of his coming, about his redemptive work, about his divine nature, but that his descent is from the line of David. And it's through these prophets that this, the idea of resurrection first enters the story. So we are all familiar maybe with the chapter in Ezekiel 37. Um, and Ezekiel comes upon this vision of this valley of full of dry bones. And he starts to have this conversation with God about these dry bones. And they represent the kingdom of Judah. They represent this sense that exile has brought them nothing but death. And, and he asks the question, can these bones live? And then the word of the Lord comes to him to prophesy to the bones and the, whole, the spirit comes and breathes life. And then suddenly this vision erupts and Ezekiel uh, sees this vast army. And this is, um, this is a new idea, this new picture, this new idea that actually dead things can come to life again. And in the same way that God can come and bring life once again to the people of Israel, that God can come and breathe life into the story that he will that they ultimately their restoration will come in the same way. And then finally, and I mentioned this already with Moses, but probably arguably the most significant part of their reshaping was their understanding of the presence of God. So Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they all understand that a change of heart is key to what God is doing. And Israel, as I said, they so blindly believed that for as long as the temple was there, that nothing could happen to them. And they completely lost sight of the significance of the presence of God. And so God comes and says to them that the only way out of this is a complete heart transformation. This is a new type of temple, and this is a new covenant. And that Jeremiah 31, I might have put it up there. Yep. Jeremiah 31, there we go. It says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And Ezekiel also in Ezekiel 36, he prophesies this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. God's doing a new thing and they are learning a new language of faith as exiles. And even though they ended up in the years to come under other powers, the Medes and the Persians come next and on it goes until we know even with Jesus, even though they are back in Jerusalem, they are occupied by Romans, they are always they are always strangers in their own land, in a sense. This, From this moment on, the image of Babylon and the image of exile remains a really important source for their imagination and their faith. And this metaphor of exile gets carried right through to the New Testament. Jesus himself was the ultimate exile. First um, Peter is written to the early church addressing life as exile. This is something we have to get our heads around as people of faith, this image of exile. And that's what I'm going to get us to think about. So I'm going to pause because I've just thrown a load of information at you. I've given you loads. Um, and so I just, what I, what I want you to do is just to give you a minute to get your heads around everything that I have said. And then we're going to, what we're going to do is basically we're going to move into really thinking about what does exile mean for us? And what does it mean to be a people of exile? What does it mean to follow God as people of exile? And we're going to look a little bit more at the book of Daniel in order to do that. So before we do that, before we move on, I just, just to give you a couple of minutes just to like get your thoughts together, two quick questions and then I have a couple of other questions. We're going to do a little video and then a couple of other questions. So what were the standout moments for you at this stage of the story? And then I just want you to... Think about exile. Think about what it would have been like. What are some of the things that you might have thought or felt? What are some of the questions that you might have had? Because I think in order to understand exile and what it is to be a people of exile, we have to think about the experience, the actual experience of exile. So we know, we'll talk about this, we know we're not exiled in the same way. We're not displaced from our our land and our home. But in order to think about what it feels like to be a people of exile, let's just take a few minutes to get our heads around what the experience of exile might have been like for the people of Judah. So take a couple of minutes and then we'll do the video. Is that all right, Christy? You want to just grab a couple of people beside you?
Okay, I'm going to interrupt you. Um, we're going to watch a we're going to watch a video. It's a, it's a couple of minutes long. Um, I was saying to Christy, if you haven't come across this before, the Bible Project, I highly recommend it. In fact, if I could have just played all their videos this morning, it would have been great. They do like a summary of all the books of the Bible, and it's actually it's really really well done. It's really helpful. So even if after this morning, if, you, if any of them, if you want to, you can go and watch Jeremiah, Isaiah. Um, Daniel, Lamentations, they're really helpful. But this is just one exploring the theme of exile. So just to get us thinking a little bit more about what exile means. underpinned everything that moment of reframing and reshaping that actually whatever exile we find ourselves in we find our home in Jesus and so we hold on to that picture but actually um that's the big picture but there's also a challenge for us today in the 21st century and there's an author um a guy called Mike Frost and he um he basically believes that this biblical metaphor, and and Walter Brueggemann also talks about this, is the best metaphor that suits our current times of faith, our current situation as the people of God. Um, I'm going to read you a quote. It says, the Christian church is dying in the West. This painful fact is the cause of great deal of avoidance by the Christian community. Surely God will not let his church come to death. It's familiar. Um, from the story today and he says and yet the history of the church in north africa teaches us that we cannot assume divine intervention to maintain the status of the ecclesiastical institution it is not only possible for christianity in the west to falter it is apparent that the sickness is well advanced and mike frost suggests that the fall of christendom is like the fall of jerusalem and that we can't go back to the old way of doing things. So I don't know how you feel about that image or that idea, if that resonates with you and your experiences in in our culture today. Um, And he goes on to say, in fact, many feel that the church and Christianity are irrelevant. And even more, many point to the current forms of Western Christianity as the problem. In many ways, we need to correct a consumeristic Christianity aimed at meeting people's needs Others, seeing the changing culture, have entrenched themselves to fighting a culture war. Unfortunately, the culture war has passed us by and consumerism has eaten us up. And uh, he, he said, he, I, I've taken these ideas from his book that he's written called Exile. And again, really helpful book in thinking about what it looks like today in our culture to be present as the people of faith in this kind of a context. Um, and he talks about how basically... Walter Brueggemann says this, you know, when you take a historical reality and you turn it into a metaphor, it doesn't translate exactly. So when we think about the experiences we've heard about this morning and then we think about our experiences, they're not a direct fit, but they're a helpful metaphor to think about life of faith. Because he suggests that in much of the same way as in exile uh, to the people of Judah, that we are experiencing a change. We've experienced a shift. Um, 
our situation has changed as followers of God. And we have, there's been a loss of our known world. So our, the power and the establishment of the institution of the church and the position that we've held, that has all begun to shift and to change, that we've experienced some suffering. And we live in this tension of feeling out of place, of feeling that we aren't quite at home, but also of having to be present and live out our lives as people of faith in the midst of that. Um, and the other challenge for us as well is to think about what is our, what are the empires, what are the dominant empires of our day? So we are not conquered physically, so we don't live under a dominant kingdom and a dominant rule, but there are dominant uh, ideas and practices and values that make up the empire that we live in today. Um, I don't know what you would, I, had, uh, I don't, we don't have time, but if you can, you can skip the next, um, skip on to the next slide. Um, so if you go back one, so yeah, my question was, you know, is the biblical metaphor for exile the best one that suits our current situation? How would you best describe our current exile and how would you describe the dominant empire? And what, just while I'm talking, think about that. And for me, some of those things in particular, um, is, uh, is this the empire of materialism and consumerism and how that is such a dominant empire that we live under that is contrary to the values of the kingdom of God. So anything that dominates the world that we live in, that doesn't look like Jesus, that doesn't look like the kingdom, those are the kind of empires that we're thinking about and we're talking about. So rather than thinking about um, military might and military kingdoms that would have occupied in the time of Israel, thinking about what are some of the things that dominate, that hold power in our culture and in our society, that dictate and determine what life looks like and what are the things that we are called to that look different to that so that was the kind of thinking that I want you to get your head around um we need a new way for a new day and uh the next the next quote uh, says our exile so our exile today is an opportunity to reimagine what it means to be the people of God in our day and our time the real hope is not in the reconstitution of the way things were but in the idea that the end of this era actually speaks the beginning of a new flowering of Christianity. And just like the people of Israel had an opportunity to reimagine what their restoration could look like, God invites us to do the same in our context, in our culture, in our day. What does it look like to reimagine faith? Church is no longer what it was. It no longer looks the way it used to. It no longer holds the power and the position and dominates in the way that it used to in the past. But this gives us an opportunity to reimagine a new way. So I just really quickly want to take us through some of the ideas of how of what it looked like to live in exile, the way of the exile. Um, you know, at first glance, and I'm sure when you talked about what it was like, um, there was probably a lot of despair. There's a lot of sense of loss. Um, I visited Lebanon uh, just last year um, and spent some time in some of the uh, refugee settlements. Um, Lebanon hosts um, a quarter of their population now make up Syrian refugees. And I encountered some of that sense of loss. These are people who had, you know, he had, their lives were fully established and, and, and they were completely uprooted and now they're living at the mercy of this host country and it's an, it's an incredibly um, difficult and humiliating experience to go through. But the other side of the story for Israel was that Babylon was actually a really attractive city to live in. It was, um, it was huge. It was one of the most sophisticated cities on earth at the time. It had 
amazing buildings and library. It was fashionable. It had amazing food. Court lifestyle was really lavish. Um, There was something really ultimately appealing about it. And the Israelites were invited to make it their home. Even Jeremiah, you know, tells them to build homes and to get married and to have their children because this is your, this is where you're going to be for a while. So make it home. Um, and that's what they were invited to. And, um, and we see from, um, from the first six chapters of Daniel that in the midst of all of this kind of draw and appeal, um, because ultimately Babylon looked attractive, but it wanted them to bow and to worship their gods. And Daniel and his friends are the ones who remain faithful, but the reality was that not everybody did. And the first response to exile that we see in scripture is assimilation, which basically is that you just start to look like the culture all around you. So many of the Jews, Babylon just held so much appeal. They made it so much a part of their life that actually when the time came to return, Jerusalem no longer had any appeal and any allure to them. And um, it's possible to suggest that the same is true of some aspects of Christianity today, that we have simply taken on the culture and the identity and the values of the empire. Um, This is what assimilation looks like. But Daniel resisted the temptation and held on to the characteristics that defined him as belonging to God. The second response that we often see is despair. Um, We talked about how it was like it was the end of everything, The, the All their hope was gone in the midst of this. And the temptation was to ask that question, where is God? And I have no problem with us asking that question, but we have to be careful about where it leads us. Um, How do we cultivate hope in the midst of the challenges in the world around us? Um, And, you know, in today, it's easy to get overwhelmed and to feel despairing of the powers that dominate our world, of the things that we see happening, and to to lose sight of hope. And the third way that we're offered, and this is the story of Daniel, is resistance and reimagining. And it is a third way to live as people in exile that are not assimilating, that are not despairing, but to step outside of ourselves and dare to imagine that there is a better story being written. And uh, there's four things that I want to suggest that we can do in the midst of exile. So the first one is, um, and we're going to fire through them, is a dangerous critique, um, a dangerous, dangerous promises, dangerous memories, and dangerous songs. And these are the four things that I think we can reorient ourselves around in the midst of exile, in the midst of feeling out of place, in the midst of feeling like our faith does no longer gets its own way. What does it look like to live for God? So the first one I think Daniel did so well was this dangerous critique, the idea that we don't get too cozy with the empire. And um, Daniel does it both in word and in action. So in Daniel chapter 2 and 5 and 7, when he's presented with the opportunity to interpret the king's dreams, he offers this daring critique of Babylon. He offers a daring critique of its downfall. And ultimately, he is, he is rewarded for that. But do you notice that Daniel's invited in to speak into that space? But the second way, I think we, you know, it's really important to articulate who we are. But I think the better way that we can critique the world out there and the culture and the powers that be is not just with our words, but with our actions and how we live our lives. 
We have to model it. We have to embody it. And Daniel did this so powerfully in chapters 1, in chapters 3, and in chapter 6. And the first thing we, time we see that is in chapter 1-8 when it says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. So when he's offered the king's food, he de- they decide not to eat it and to eat their own food. And, uh, and, and the, they, were, it was, they were putting down a marker and saying, this is who we are. They resisted being defined by the environment around them. And I want you to notice how Daniel does it. Because Daniel doesn't go all out protest. You know, he doesn't go all out kind of, you know, full on anti the system. And he also doesn't retreat. He doesn't hide away. He doesn't find a holy huddle to, uh, to find himself in. He stays engaged with his new environment. He embraces it but he lets his life be a witness to the attractiveness of faith. And he does it graciously. And there's some really important things for us to think about. How do we resist the temptation to assimilate? We have to name the contradictions out there. So in the face of greed and consumerism, can we be communities of generosity and selfish, selfishness? Selflessness. Let's, <laughs> let's not be communities of selfishness. I, I'm just going to say that. Communities of generosity and selflessness. And in the face of marginalization of the poor and the suffering, um, can we pursue justice and mercy? We have to find out ways to invite people in to an alternative way of being. And one of the challenges, I think, for us is that often these practices are, can be an inconvenience. You know, Daniel had to live a life of intentional discipline. And so as a community, I want to challenge you. Think about what are some of the actual... Because we can say, you know, the world is so consumeristic out there, but what does that mean for us to live an alternative to that as a community? And so part of that is about identifying practices. Daniel had practices in his life that marked him out and marked him out as, as a person of faith. What are the practices as a community that will distinguish you, that will mark you out? I think an example of which is that in the face of a very consumeristic and a very um, production-driven culture out there, one of the practices that we hold people of faith that is incredibly countercultural is, is practicing Sabbath. And it's not something we talk about a lot um, in Christian community, but actually practicing Sabbath um, is incredibly countercultural um, in terms of what's happening out there. And it's, so it's not just um, what are the things that we believe in, what are the things we think about, well, what do we value and what do we live out as a community? The other thing I think is really um, countercultural is, is actually the sacrament of communion, because communion is a shared table that represents the generosity and the hospitality of God, at which there is a seat at the table for everybody and anybody. And when we practice the, the, the sacrament of communion, we remind ourselves of the story that we live in because it's so easy to get caught up in the stories that are told out there. There are so many stories in the world that lie to us about what can save us. There are so many stories that say, eat this and you'll be like this, you know, buy this and this will happen to your life. But we have a story that doesn't lie. And it's really important that when we practice communion, we realize that we are telling our story. We're telling the story of Jesus the second thing I think that we have are we have dangerous promises. And these are the things that we have to keep reminding ourselves of. And um, Babylon ultimately wanted people to forget about God and to undermine our com- their confidence in God. And uh, one of the key, um, two of the key promises, I think, that came through in Babylon that we need to hold on to, the first one is God is with us. 
And Ezekiel, start of Ezekiel, he has this incredible vision of basically the glory of God coming up from the temple in Jerusalem and leaving it and going to Babylon. And this was a totally foreign idea that God would be present in a pagan world. And this was the story of the exiles, that God went with them into exile. And, and then we move forward into the story of Jesus. Jesus came himself as the ultimate exile that we have to remember that whatever we're facing, whatever is going on in the world around us, God is with us. That is our promise and that is what we hold on to. And the second one that I think comes through really strongly in Daniel is a promise uh, to not, it's, it's, it's not quite so much a promise, but more something that we need to hold on to is this idea that we do not fear. And this theme comes up in scripture over and over and over again. And Daniel and his, and his three friends, the, uh, the three friends who enter the fiery furnace and Daniel who enters the lion's den, they lived on this idea that they did not need to be afraid because of who God was. And you know, this is not a promise that everything works out okay. It's not even a promise that, you know, we know throughout history, so many people have lost their lives for Jesus. But it is this underwriting faith that actually whatever happens around us in the here and the now, we do not have need to fear because God will ultimately prevail. That God is ultimately faithful in the story that he's writing in the world and what will happen overall. And, uh, and part of this is this, this maintaining this sense of reality of we live in the now and the not yet, that um, this is the reality of the world that we live in, but there is a king who has come and is coming again to restore his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the kind of hope that we live with in the face of the world. And the third thing I think we hold on to are dangerous memories. And so much of the story of Israel has been reminding them to keep looking back to where they've come from, keep looking back on the story, keep remembering the God who has moved in the past and that he's the God who will move again. And Daniel serves to remind us of a God who, who works redemptively. And some of their dangerous stories were about men and women like Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Joseph. Um, but, you know, our most dangerous story is the story of Jesus of of what it looked like for him to come as an exile, of what he modeled, what he lived out here on earth. And Jesus has to be the center of our story, that we keep coming back to it and keep reminding ourselves of what it looks like. You know, the biggest part of that story that is always so incredibly challenging is how Jesus lived out incarnationally. Um, He lived out in proximity to the people around him and he modeled an alternative way of doing life Um, and um, that has to be something that captures our imaginations and Jeremiah gave the same idea to the to the people of Israel in exile Um, you know that that verse in Jeremiah 39 did I I don't know if I put it in there Christy I've probably lost all run of my slides yeah Oh, yes. So then, so Jeremiah says this, he's, as I said, he tells them to get married and to have their sons and daughters. And then he says this uh, further down, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And that's an incredibly challenging thing that he offers the exiles. And those words, peace and prosperity, that word um, in the Hebrew is shalom. That is the wholeness of God. That that's what we are placed here on earth to seek, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. That's the story that we've been invited to live in. 
And the final thing I think that God calls us to is, um, is dangerous songs. And uh, I haven't got time this morning to go into the book of Lamentations. But Lamentations is basically, it tells the pain of exile. It tells the story of loss. It grieves, it gives voice to all of those difficult things that the people of Israel have gone through. And I love that the Bible gives a place and a space for grief and for disappointment and for despair, that it gives voice to it, that it acknowledges it and it recognizes it. And, uh, um, but there's something happens in the book of Lamentations. And Walter Brueggemann says this, if we are to remain faithful and nonviolent and full of joy in the midst of a dominant empire, we must learn to grieve. And I think we don't always do that very well in church because it's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes to give voice to the difficult things that we face in life. But the truth is that we live in this tension of people of faith, that we are like, we live in the light of this incredible hope that we carry, the resurrected Jesus and the hope that he brings. But actually we live in the tension of the reality of our often painful and difficult lives and the pain and the difficulty of the lives of the people around us. And sometimes it's actually heartbreaking. And I think we have to learn as communities of faith to give voice to the pain, to, to voice grief, because I think that that kind of grief leads us to hope. And um, there's a great quote, um, as, so go on to the next one. And that's also a great quote, but I don't have time for it. So the next one, this has really helped me in understanding hope in the midst of exile. Genuine hope is not blind optimism. It is hope with open eyes, which sees the suffering and yet believes in the future. God doesn't ask us to deny what's happening in the world and the pain of the world. And I think he actually asks us to give voice to it, to grieve it and to lament it, but then to step into hope. And that's what Lamentations does. They don't stop in despair. They don't stop in disappointment. They find their way back to the God of Yahweh who is faithful and they find their way back to hope. And that's the invitation that God gives us. Real hope, I think, comes after despair because of the place in which it is born in. And anybody who's experienced grief and loss knows that you don't get to hope by bypassing the pain of what you've lost. It's part of the journey and we've got to learn to do it in Christian community. And then that's why we hope. Because we cry out and we lament that all is not right in our world, that everything is not as it should be. And that is precisely why he came to die. That's what he came to rescue us from. And we need to call these things out and to speak them into being. And I think while we sing these songs of lament and we sing our songs of grief, it, it allows hope to rise up within us and to begin to sing the song of hope as communities of faith. And I think the final thing that God challenges us to do in the face of exile is to have an imagination for his kingdom. We have to have a vision that's at odds with the empire that is out there, that is subversive, that is countercultural, that is dangerous and hopeful and daring. I, there's, lo- there's lots of inspiring images in the prophets, but I just love what Ezekiel calls out. And uh, it says, for Ezekiel 34 to 37, just to finish, it says this. He promises to bring Israel out of anarchy, back from disgrace, up from the grave, and together out of brokenness. And I think of a quote on this. Um, it is, in modern jargon, a truly holistic gospel. Ezekiel was ministering to a people, and we can think of people in our lives and in our world, who are broken and battered in every conceivable way. 
There were political, economic, agricultural, social, judicial, religious, personal, relational, and spiritual dimensions to their sin and suffering. And God intended to tackle every aspect of that need. Such is the breadth and depth of the biblical gospel. And we are invited to imagine and to have a vision for that kind of gospel impacting the lives of those around us, impacting our community and our towns and our cities and our nation. That from the temple, a river of life flows to all dead places and brings life. What's possible with when we partner with God in bringing about his kingdom? So as we finish this morning, I want to get you guys to pray together. I want to get you to think just for a moment this morning about maybe what are some of the things that you are lamenting in your own community, in your own town, or even in your own nation. What are some of the things that unsettle you and in your heart say, all is not right in our world. Um, And we want to cry out to God for those things. We want to lift those things before God. And you know, I think sometimes part of our lament has to be also lamenting the church and what the church looks like and where the church isn't being what it should be, where the church isn't, um, you know, being the people that God has called it to be just in the same way that the people of Judah were living out. What are some of the idols that we have fallen to? What are some of the unholy alliances that we've given ourselves to? We have to learn to lament those things as well as the pain in our world. Um, and I want us to, I want you to, to even if it's just naming a couple of things that are for you that, that sit in your heart, um, I want you to pray for them. But then I, want, I don't want us to stop there. I want you to finish by praying hope over those things, by prophesying to the, to the dry bones, by speaking life, that by envisioning and imagining what's possible with God, what would it look like if God's kingdom would come to those places, to those people, to those situations? What could God possibly do in our midst? And so I want your prayers to take you there. So start by crying out to God for the things that break your heart, the things that we're lamenting. But I want you to finish by prophesying hope, by speaking out what, what vision you hold for the kingdom of God in your midst. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Okay, let me pray for you. And then I just want you to, just to take the last few minutes that we have together to pray into those things. Father, we thank you that you're with us. Uh, thank you that you are speaking to us. Um, Father, thank you that you're a God who is with us in exile, Lord, that wherever uh, situation we find ourselves in today as people of faith, Lord, you're right here with us. And you're calling us to be a people who reimagine what it looks like to follow you. And so, Holy Spirit, this morning, we do want to acknowledge that all is not right in our world. And we do hope with open eyes because we see and we experience day in and day out in our own lives and the lives of people around us that there is so much pain and suffering and disappointment and loss and despair. And yet, and yet, Lord, we know that we live in the light of the great promise. Lord, that we've already found our home in you, Jesus. That when you made yourself an exile and you showed us what it looked like to live out that life and you called us Lord, once again, back over the Jordan to enter into a life of freedom, to a life of forgiveness, and to a life of wholeness. Lord, that's what we long for, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. And so, Lord, cause hope to rise up within us afresh this morning as we think about those who are in need of it today. Amen. So.
Go for it. Pray. Like the ancients, we know about ashes and smoldering ruins and collapse of dreams, and loss of treasure and failed faith and dislocation and anxiety and anger and self-pity. For we have watched the certitudes and the entitlements of our world evaporate. Like the ancients, we are a mix, perpetrators knowing that we have brought this on ourselves, and a mix of victims assaulted by others who rage against us. Like the ancients, we weep in honesty at a world lost and the dread silence of your absence. We know and keep busy in denial, but we know. Like the ancients, we refuse the ashes and watch for newness. Like them, we ask, can these bones live? Like the ancients, we ask, is the hand of the Lord shortened that the Lord cannot save? And like the ancients, we ask, will you at this time restore what was? And then we wait. We wait through the crackling of fire and the smash of buildings and the mounting body counts and the field fabric of medicine and justice and education. We wait in a land of strangeness. But there we sing songs of sadness, songs of absence, and then songs of praise, acts of hope, gestures of Easter gifts you have yet to give. Amen. Thanks, guys.